Hello, everybody. I'm Danny Boom Boom McCarthy. Welcome back to the Story of Nowhere podcast. I hope you don't hate that little theme song there, because you're going to have to hear it one more time after this. I can now say with confidence that this series will be no more or no less than three episodes. After the next episode, which is going to be the conclusion to this series, I'll be reposting my appearance on Bootsy Greencast, which was recorded in a tent live at the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest this past August. After that, I'm going to release a couple of shows that I mentioned I was working on a while back. And yes, that does include the much-fabled Political Spectrum episode, which, Jesus, with the amount of hype I've drummed up for that one, I'm almost afraid to put the thing out. But I will. And from then on, it's all surprises. I've got about three dozen shows lined up, maybe more. And after a year or so of doing this whole podcasting thing... I've found that announcing which show I want to do next screws me up, 
Because I get to work on a big project, but then I get a spontaneous idea to do a completely different show, but I don't want to because then that would make me a liar because I said I was going to do this big show, but really I want to do this other one. Stupid, I know. Obviously, I've let that rule slide these past few months. I mean, when did I first mention the Political Spectrum show? Does anyone even remember anymore? <sighs> anyway, the point is, I'm going to try to move the show in a more spontaneous direction. Of course, I'm still going to be doing my deep dives like this Britain series here, because I love doing that kind of thing. And I'm still going to deliver what I said was coming, because I want to do those shows anyway. But after this, I'm not going to officially commit myself to any given show being next, unless I'm absolutely 100% certain, because new ideas for timely shows come up all the time, and I'm sick of feeling like I need to wait to do them. Also, when I promise to do a show next, I feel like I need to get it out as soon as possible, because I don't want to suddenly ghost you all, and that sense of rushing puts the quality of the show at risk. So there's that spiel. Thank you for your patience. It's a virtue in some circles. Now, while I've got your attention, I'd like to extend my congratulations to fellow podcaster Brett Vinat, a man who I'm lucky to call a mentor and honored to call a friend, for bringing his exceptional School Sucks podcast to a fitting, timely, and glorious end this past week. For 12 years, Brett has pointed out, to put it mildly, the shortcomings of American schooling as it is and as it has been for, at this point, well over a hundred years. But far more important than just dwelling on the problems of schooling, Brett has given his listeners a comprehensive and eclectic curriculum, or anti-curriculum, by offering detailed discussions on subjects ranging from critical thinking to memory training, from stoicism to film analysis, from political and media literacy to cleaning your damn room, before it was cool. In other words, despite the title's obvious negative connotation, the School Sucks podcast has devoted far more time to constructive solutions than it's spent dwelling on irreparable problems. And believe me, I know. Not only did the lessons of Brett's show help me through when I was in somewhat of a drunken, debaucherous rut some years back, when Brett and I met in person in 2017, he was really the first person, a, a celebrity as far as I was concerned, to tell me, hey man, you can be more than just part of the audience. And that was just what I needed, just, just what I wanted. And then in 2019, he proved to me that he wasn't just bullshitting me. He proverbially handed me a microphone and said, let's do a show together. And then we did, in pursuit of Utopia the precursor to this very show. And then he put me in touch with the great Kevin Cole. Brett was the one who got me on this side of the microphone, and since that very first episode of In Pursuit of Utopia back in the summer of 2019, I've been here, doing that show, and then some interviews, then my audiobook, and now this show. So I really owe Brett a lot. Now, I'll leave it there as far as that's concerned. You can hear my little tribute to Brett in the final graduation episode of the School Sucks podcast, as well as the well-deserved tributes of many other individuals who've been aided by Brett over these past 12 years. Thanks, Brett. In the words of Joe Esposito, you're the best around. Cheers, buddy. And now back to this particular show. I imagine that if you're listening to this, 
You've already heard episode 15, part one of this series. If somehow you missed that or slept through it or something, I recommend checking it out before leaping on into this one. It really lays the groundwork for this one, and frankly, without part one, this here part two ain't gonna make very much sense. Or, well, I guess it'll make sense, but you'll feel like something's missing. So go on. Listen to part one. Besides, I sort of introduced the series itself in that show, and I'm not about to repeat myself here, so you better make sure you've heard it. Instead of repeating myself, I'll take this opportunity to do a little salesmanship. If you enjoy this podcast and find the historical analysis and philosophical commentary I provide interesting or useful or entertaining, I beseech you to subscribe if you haven't already, and to recommend this show to any of your friends and family who you think might be receptive to this sort of production. And, of course, it would be a great help to this project if you went to storyofnowhere.com book and picked up a physical paperback copy of The Story of Nowhere. At this point, other than mailing me an envelope full of cash, that's the only way to financially support The Story of Nowhere project. Putting each of these shows together costs a great deal of time and energy and resources. And procuring very old and very rare primary materials, such as you'll hear referenced and dissected in this very episode, is not cheap. And every book sale aids me in not only continuing the show as it is, but furthermore, it helps the show grow. And I do want it to grow, so I can continue to provide ever more detailed, astute, and hopefully enjoyable deconstructions of the strangely consistent strain of utopian thinking which has animated political elites down through the millennia, right up to the modern day. And indeed, coverage of modern-day permutations of utopian ideology will be coming very soon. And here I go, already breaking my new rule of not revealing my plans. <laughs> of course... The book is available in multiple virtual forms for free, and this will always be the case. But nonetheless, each physical copy sold helps. So if you can spare it, check out storyofnowhere.com book, and be sure to recommend the show to all of your weird friends. And tell them that they can find it, not only at storyofnowhere.com, but on iTunes, Spotify, Podcast Addict, uh, let's see here. Google Podcasts, Overcast, Breaker, CastBox, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, and Stitcher. It's pretty much everywhere. And hey, what about that brief history of critical thinking series I did? That was fun, right? I'm sure you can think of somebody who'd benefit from that, so send it along. And there it is, my little sales pitch. With all that done and out of the way... I'll say thank you, as always, for listening to the show, and now send you shrieking down the gullet of Britannia that you might learn of her inner workings. Good luck.
Empire and Utopia, The Rise and Rule of Britannia, Part 2, Empire and Utopia, Britain Unlimited. Chapter 1, The Golden Age of Camelot, A.D. 500. Britain is burning. The Romans are gone, and pagan Anglo-Saxons flood in from the south and the east. Uther Pendragon, king of the besieged Britons, is dead, poisoned at Verulam by conniving Saxons. German hordes prepare to cross the Channel and obliterate the British race once and for all. The Britons themselves are confined to the north and western edges of the island. Angles and Saxons run amuck. There is only chaos. But in the darkness following the death of the king, there came a flicker of hope. Uther's young son would don the crown and lead the charge against the conquerors. The boy who would be king was named Arthur. Uther Pendragon being dead, the nobility from several provinces assembled together at Silcester and proposed to Debricius, Archbishop of Legions, that he should consecrate Arthur, Uther's son, to be their king. For they were now in great straits, because, upon hearing of the king's death, the Saxons had invited over their countrymen from Germany, and, under the command of Colgrin, were attempting to exterminate the whole British race. They had also entirely subdued all that part of the island, which extends from the Humber to the Sea of Caithness. Dubricius, therefore, grieving for the calamities of his country, in conjunction with the other bishops, set the crown upon Arthur's head. Arthur was then fifteen years old, but a youth of such unparalleled courage and generosity, joined with that sweetness of temper and innate goodness, has gained him universal love. When his coronation was over, he, according to usual custom, showed his bounty and munificence to the people and such a number of soldiers flocked to him upon it that his treasury was not able to answer that vast expense. But such a spirit of generosity, joined with valour, can never long want means to support itself. Arthur, therefore, the better to keep up his munificence, resolved to make use of his courage and fall upon the Saxons, that he might enrich his followers with their wealth. To this he was also moved by the justice of the cause, since the entire monarchy of Britain belonged to him by hereditary right. Imbued with valour and wisdom and brute force, King Arthur made bloody and holy war against that wicked race of invaders, the Saxons. Since these impious and detestable Saxons have disdained to keep faith with me, I, to keep faith with God will endeavour to revenge the blood of my countrymen this day upon them. To arms, soldiers, to arms, and courageously fall upon the perfidious wretches over whom we shall, with Christ assisting us, undoubtedly obtain the victory. The Saxons were no match for Arthur and the mystical folk weapons he bore into battle. Then girding on his caliburn, which was an excellent sword made in the Isle of Avalon. He graced his right hand with his lance, named Ron, which was hard, broad, and fit for slaughter. Whereupon Arthur, provoked to see the little advantage he had yet gained, and that victory still continued in suspense, drew out his caliburn, and calling upon the name of the Blessed Virgin, rushed forward with great fury into the thickest of the enemy's ranks, of whom 
such was the merit of his prayers, not one escaped alive that felt the fury of his sword. Neither did he give over the fury of the assault, until he had, with his Caliburn alone, killed four hundred and seventy men. With might and right on his side, and Caliburn and Ron in his hands, Britain's greatest king managed to force the Germanic invaders into submission and unite the land under his rule. Having done so, the ambitious King Arthur then turned his sights outwards. Just over a year later, he had added to his realm Ireland, Iceland, Gothland, and the Orkney Islands. Having thus established a true British empire, Arthur and his Britons entered into an age of peace, honor, and tranquility. So highly respected were Arthur and his court that foreign nations couldn't help but imitate their manners of speech and dress. A British gentlemanliness became the standard for the civilized world, while the uncivilized world trembled at the very mention of righteous Arthur. Smitten with his own reputation, Arthur set out to extend his dominion even further, successfully conquering Norway, Dacia, Aquitaine, and Gaul. Despite being a conqueror beyond compare, Arthur was a wise and scrupulous leader, taking care to heed the counsel of all the kings of the lands he reigned over. He was the true heir of Brutus, father of Britain, destined to be king over a boundless realm. His was a time and place of wizards and fair maidens and good Christian soldiers. It is the archetypal kingdom, the archetypal Britain, in which fantasy and history meet. Duty, chivalry, and kingship are all embodied here in this utopia, and in this utopian king. The mythical reign of Arthur is the Golden Age myth of Britain. Chapter 2. Arthurian Ripples Like Brutus, King Arthur first appears in Nennius's 9th century Historia Britonum. Only, in this version, Arthur's not called a king, but a great general. His elevation to royalty comes centuries later, when, also like Brutus, his character is fleshed out in far greater detail in Geoffrey of Monmouth's 12th century work, Historia Regum Britanniae. This is the version of the Arthurian legend that you have just heard. It's also the version that's going to wind up being the most relevant to this presentation later on. However, the most recognizable, definitive version of the myth is certainly Le Mort d'Arthur, The Death of Arthur, written in 1485 by Sir Thomas Mallory. That very year happened to mark a very important shift in English politics. For 30 years, beginning in 1455, two factions of England's ruling dynasty, the House of Plantagenet, wrestled for the throne in a series of civil conflicts now known as the Wars of the Roses. In 1485, the same year Mallory wrote his book, the wars ground to a halt when Richard III, England's final Plantagenet king, was defeated in battle by the Welsh aristocrat Henry Tudor, as dramatized in the 1939 classic Tower of London. It was certainly a lucky coincidence for the newly crowned King Henry VII that Mallory's book came out and reignited popular interest in Arthur the very year that he rose to power. England had been ruled by Plantagenet kings for over 300 years since the days of Henry II. 
simply killing Richard III would not be enough to legitimize the Tudor claim to the throne in the eyes of the public. Of course, Henry Tudor was of proper descent, and he was by no means a usurper. His mother was descended from the Lancaster branch of the House of Plantagenet. But Mallory's reintroduction of King Arthur offered Henry something more. The Plantagenets had been the descendants of the Normans, the invading force that conquered England in 1066. While the Plantagenets claimed to also be descended from Brutus through the Welsh King Llewellyn the Great, they were primarily of Norman, that is, French, stock. Add to this the fact that England itself, at the time of the Norman invasion and afterwards, was mostly populated with Anglo-Saxons, Germanic peoples. The native Britons, dating at least as far back as the 6th century, had been pushed into what is now Wales. It's in Wales that the purest, brutish, British blood flows. Nennius and Geoffrey of Monmouth were both Welsh and their mythic histories served as pro-Welsh, pro-Britain propaganda. And Henry's grandfather, Owen, claimed descent from Cadwalder, the last of the legendary kings, and of course, an heir of Arthur's. Now, with the rise of Henry VII in the house of Tudor, a Welshman, a true Briton, a true and direct descendant of King Arthur, and therefore of Brutus, at last sat on the throne of England. The obvious opportunity was not lost on Henry. He leaned into his native heritage and took full advantage of the Arthurian fervor that followed Mallory's Le Mort d'Arthur. He based his court at Winchester in southeast England, which was said to be the historic site of Arthur's Camelot. He flew the same red dragon flag as Arthur. And... Rather than name his firstborn son after himself, he instead chose to christen him Prince Arthur, Arthur Tudor. Unfortunately, Prince Arthur would die before he could become King Arthur II. His younger brother, who was named after their dad, succeeded Henry as King Henry VIII. Even still, the new king kept up the family's Arthurian appearances, quite literally, in fact. At the Winchester Castle, there is a model of Arthur's famous round table. Henry had the piece refurbished, and in the process, had Arthur's face repainted to look exactly like his own. They were directly related, after all, so it's no surprise that they'd look alike, I guess. But the link between the great King Arthur and the Tudor dynasty would ironically, be at its strongest during the reign of Henry's daughter, Queen Elizabeth I. Like her forebearer Arthur, Elizabeth was a staunch defender of her people, ruthlessly warding off Scottish usurpers from the English throne. She was a strong military leader, pushing England towards naval supremacy with the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1585. And she was even advised by a man who like the magical Merlin of the Arthurian tales, was called, in his day, a wizard. John D. was the Tudor Merlin, a polymath who dabbled in numerous arts, including the art of history. 
Though he's primarily remembered as a key figure in Western occultism, Dee's most significant work may have been that which he did as a historian working for the crown. For it was in that role that John Dee provided geographical, legal, and historical justifications for a transatlantic British empire. Chapter 3. John Dee, the Man The Dee family, like the Tudors, came from Wales, their name being derived from the Welsh word du, meaning black. When the Tudors rose to power, the Dees followed them to England to serve the new Britannic monarchy. Roland Dee served as a courtier in the retinue of Henry VIII, though it would be his son, John, who would have the most to offer the crown. However, John is more commonly remembered not for his contributions to Tudor politics, but for his association with the occult. John Dee is the occult's Leonardo. He studied astrology and astronomy, as well as alchemy, philosophy, mathematics, the natural sciences, and more. In John Dee, The Politics of Reading and Writing in the English Renaissance, William Sherman says, quote, Like other representatives of late Renaissance encyclopedism, he believed that his strivings in these various spheres amounted to a patterned and synthetic endeavor, that by mastering all disciplines and all books, he would apprehend the mystery of God's creation, unquote. With his long white beard, his little black cap, and his bizarre and esoteric interests, Dee was, in many respects, the real-life inspiration behind the now-stereotypical image of a wizard. Given his reputation as an occultist and the intrigue that surrounded him, he would later be used as the model for William Shakespeare's sorcerer Prospero in his play The Tempest. As interesting as his mystical exploits are, they distract from his more hard-nosed and, frankly, more important work, which is the concern of this particular presentation. As it turns out, John Dee was a key player in the very early years of British imperial thought. According to most reference works, John Dee is the man who actually coined the term British Empire, in his 1576 work, General and Rare Memorials Pertaining to the Perfect Art of Navigation. However, as was shown in Part 1 of this series, the concept of a British Empire precedes D, namely in the Duke of Somerset's 1547 call for a, quote, Empire of Great Britain, unquote. According to Dee himself, a 1568 book by William Lombard contained the words British Empire. And that same year, eight years before Dee supposedly coined the term, the Welsh cartographer Humphrey Lloyd mentioned a, quote, British Empire, unquote, in his Commentarioli Britannicae Descriptionis Fragmentum. There is some speculation that Dee had, in fact, referred to a British empire before Lloyd in a now-lost 1565 work, Synopsis Republicae Britannicae, but this, of course, can't be proven. Therefore, based on the evidence available to us, it would appear that, despite what reputable encyclopedias and databases continue to claim, John Dee did not coin the term British Empire and certainly the concept of a British Empire didn't originate with him either. 
Nevertheless, D was crucial in the early mental configuration of the empire, even if he wasn't directly responsible for its rhetorical founding. Let us now turn to his imperial contributions. Not quite as incredible as alchemy or conversations with angels, yet, while legalistic and practical in their intent, still, in true Dean fashion, fantastical and riddled with occulted history in their own right. Chapter 4. John D. and the British Empire Aside from being Shakespeare's basis for Prospero the Sorcerer, John D. was also, allegedly, a partial inspiration for another literary figure, Ian Fleming's famous agent of imperialism, James Bond. D. himself, among his many vocations, had actually worked as a spy for Queen Elizabeth, signing his secret correspondences 007. Unsurprisingly, some of his works were never published for general consumption, namely those which would have been of specific service to the crown or to privateers. According to historian Ken McMillan in Discourse on History, Geography, and Law, Dee's general and rare memorials pertaining to the perfect art of navigation, quote, was published in a limited run of 100 copies in 1577, and in a catalog of his library prepared in 1583, D indicated that 60 copies remained on his bookshelf. There's evidence to suggest that the Queen herself suppressed its distribution because she was interested in keeping secret many of D's ideas, and there's little reason to believe that it had much lasting impact. Two other extant writings, Of Famous and Rich Discoveries, 1577, and A Brief Remembrance of Sundry Foreign Regions, Discovered, Inhabited, and Partly Conquered by the Subjects of the British Monarchy, 1578, likely had limited audiences. Dee's contributions to the early empire were, therefore, not so much propagandistic, that is, intended to rally the masses, Rather, his imperial works were aimed at specific influential individuals and groups. Given his official-unofficial role and lack of published work on imperialism, historians through the years haven't considered him all that important to the origins of the British Empire, even while they parrot the claim that he coined the term. With regards to his contributions to empirecraft, Macmillan writes that most historians have traditionally viewed Dee as, quote, merely an enthusiastic amateur, but one of sufficient standing to have been granted a few audiences with senior state officials to muse over his rather far-fetched ideas, unquote. This all changed in 1976. In that year, a collection of lost documents by Dee was discovered, documents which were referenced to by D in other works, but until then thought by historians to be alternative titles to some works of his that were already known. This newly discovered volume, out of sight for four centuries, at last shed light on John D's true role in the intellectual formation of the British Empire. Chapter 5. The Limits of the British Empire Britanniki Imperii Limites, or The Limits of the British Empire in English, is a 94-page volume comprised of four documents 
which apparently came out of nowhere in 1976. These documents were individually written and presented to Queen Elizabeth by John Dee in 1577 and 78. In 1593, they were compiled into a single volume by a clerk, likely under Dee's supervision, and passed into state custody. Taken together, the four documents make the case for an expansive British empire to be helmed by Elizabeth and her successors. Dee proclaims that England and Scotland rightly fall under the jurisdiction, or imperium, of the Queen, that they ought to merge into one united British kingdom. He refutes the papal bulls of donation, which granted Spain and Portugal the first rights over the Americas, and by citing an older version of the newly repopularized British Golden Age myth, he argues that the English monarch has not only the right but the duty to spread British influence across the isles of the North Atlantic and on into the New World. Over the coming centuries, the kingdoms of England and Scotland would unite to become Great Britain. The British would establish highly productive colonies on the North American continent in defiance of any notion of Iberian or Catholic hegemony in the New World. And the agents and exponents of British imperialism would argue that it was not only their right, but their duty to spread British influence around the globe. To be poetic, in this one little book, the magician John Dee foretold the history of the British Empire. In the article Discourse on History, Geography, and Law, Ken McMillan writes, Dee's Limits of the British Empire although clearly seen until now by a very limited audience, must be given pride of place for being the earliest justification for the expansion of the British Empire to be offered in Elizabethan England. These works were offered at the beginning rather than the end of a decade, 1576 to 1585, of great uncertainty and intense planning for the English land and sea empire in North America and the North Atlantic. Thus, the arguments and evidence that Dee expresses and develops in these seminal writings on empire, his early use of the term British Empire, and the overall impact of Limits, the volume, are of much more than passing interest. Dee's status as an imperial thinker shifts from enthusiastic amateur to leading expert, and his works are now required reading for those interested in claims to overseas territories during the early modern period, in early formulations of the British Empire, and in the contemporary use of evidence to serve a political and propagandist purpose. Unquote. The four documents contained in Limits are 1. Concerning a new location for the island of Estotalant and the province of Drogio, 2. Concerning this example of geographical reform. 3. Unto your majesty's title royal these foreign regions and islands do appertain four points. And finally, number 4. The limits of the British Empire, the longest of the four for which the collection is named. When these four documents are taken as one work, which D seems to have intended them to be, Limits primarily covers three subjects as they relate to the budding empire. Geography, law, and history. Let's get started with geography. Chapter 6. 
Geographical Reform. If at all possible, I recommend you keep a modern world map on hand for this section. During the course of his eclectic education, John Dee studied at the University of Louvain under Gerard Mercator, the master geographer and cartographer. To this day, Mercator's design of the world map is the most recognizable and the most commonly used. By inflating the apparent size of land masses farther away from the equator, he was able to draw a consistent two-dimensional north-south map of the world that was useful to mariners. Dee maintained an interest in geography and cartography even after his education under the master Mercator. His private library was filled with books on the subjects, their margins replete with notes. His knowledge of the art and science of charting the world earned him quite the impressive clientele. Macmillan writes, quote, From the mid-1550s, he was recognized as an expert in geography, and when seeking advice and instruction for trade expeditions, it was to Dee that many explorers turned. Dee prepared maps and instructions for several explorers, including Francis Drake, the first Englishman to circumnavigate the globe, Martin Frobisher, a privateer who sought the Northwest Passage, Humphrey Gilbert, a zealous imperialist and explorer, and Walter Raleigh, founder of the lost colony of Roanoke and seeker of the gold city of El Dorado. Dee's general and rare memorials pertaining to the perfect art of navigation was written in 1576 to promote Frobisher's voyage and the trading goals of the Muscovy Company. Unquote. And here's a little bit of interesting info on the Muscovy Company. It was an English company founded in 1555, which established a monopoly on trade with the Grand Duchy of Moscow, which was the predecessor of Tsarist Russia. It was the first major joint stock company, and it didn't go out of business until the rise of the Bolsheviks in 1917. Anyway, in the limits of the British Empire, Dee offers his own geography of the North Atlantic Islands and of the northern part of the New World, called Meta Incognita, Unknown Shore, by Queen Elizabeth. He argued that the generally accepted geography of these regions was incorrect, and his motive is clear. Refuting the generally accepted geography, which was largely laid out by the Spanish, would paint the Spanish as incompetent explorers and undermine their claim to the Americas. D. writes, quote, Whence it will be universally agreed how lucky I have been in this new locating of the island of Estotaland and the province of Drogio, in my conjecture, or in my diligence, or, at least, how carelessly others studied the brief account of the noble people, since they clearly represented the island of Estotaland to us as a continental landmass, and on the other hand, the land of Drogio as an island, and that, indeed, at no very great distance from Frisiland. I know all of these old names for landmasses can get kind of confusing, but the important point is that while the Spanish claimed that Estotaland was a part of the North American continent, Dee argued that it was, in fact, modern day Baffin Island between Canada and Greenland. 
Conversely, he identified Drogio as what is today Labrador, Canada, part of the mainland, whereas, according to the Spanish, Drogio was an island about 200 miles north of Scotland. Dee even refuted the accepted distance between the Old and New Worlds. Prevailing wisdom at the time held that Meta Incognita was about 30 degrees away from Britain, but Dee claimed that they were actually 50 degrees apart. Incidentally, he turned out to be correct, but the pursuit of truth wasn't his only motive. This correction, like his others, served a very specific political purpose. In the late 1570s, as Dee was writing and presenting limits to the Queen, the English explorer Martin Frobisher, who himself consulted with Dee, embarked on a series of voyages to the northern Americas in search of a northwest passage from the Atlantic Ocean into the Pacific. As Macmillan puts it, the added distance between Britain and Meta Incognita, quote, provided a good reason for Frobisher to plant men on Estotaland as a base of operations and replenishment, unquote. At the same time, Dee claimed that the American continent itself was narrower than was thought, making the quest for a Northwest Passage a less daunting endeavor, and therefore more amenable to the crown. In other words, the Great Gulf of the Atlantic, plus the relative smallness of Meta Incognita, justified the establishment of an imperial outpost in the New World. And indeed, during his 1578 voyage following Dee's presentations to Elizabeth, settlement was attempted, though it quickly succumbed to dissent and discontent. Closing his exposition on geography, Dee writes, quote, Many wonderful, surprising, secret, and very delightful facts will, if it pleases our august and blessed Empress, with God's will, be revealed within the next seven years. Unquote. Based on this statement, as well as on other contemporary source material, Ken Macmillan asserts that, quote, in his meetings in November 1577, then, it may be surmised that John Dee took the opportunity to recommend that Martin Frobisher be awarded a letter patent to last seven years, a standard licensing period, to travel to Baffin Island, settle some men there to mine for gold, and then continue his search for the Northwest Passage. These recommendations were precisely what Frobisher and Dee's close circle of friends important statesmen and Elizabethan favorites such as Sir Edward Dyer, Sir Humphrey Gilbert, Sir Christopher Hatton, Sir Philip Sidney, and Sir Francis Walsingham desired. Indeed, it was these men who ensured that Dee received his audiences with the Queen in order to further their plans for the creation of an empire that would bring wealth to their monarch, increase English importance in foreign affairs, and spread the Protestant cause." Unquote. It wasn't just Dee's geographical arguments that so impressed the Queen and secured Frobisher's patent, though. The major issue to contend with wasn't the Iberians' geographical ignorance, but their claim of dominion over the New World, granted to them by the Roman Catholic Church. And while his superior geography may have embarrassed the Spaniards, it hardly proved that the English had any more a claim to the Americas than they did. To legitimize British activity in the Americas, John Dee presented a legal case to the Queen, demonstrating that the British had, in fact, discovered and settled the Americas before the Spanish. 
Chapter 7 Legal Precedent It should hardly be a surprise at this point that John D. was also a legal expert, whose education in law was specifically utilized by the Elizabethan court in matters regarding the imperial project. In 1580, Francis Drake, the first Englishman to circumnavigate the planet, returned to England with some goods from the Caribbean and a claim over a region he called Nova Albion, or New Albion, located somewhere in modern California, or some say in modern Oregon. Hearing this news, the Spanish complained that Drake had violated their dominion over these lands by one, engaging in unapproved commerce in the Caribbean, and two, laying claim to land which the Pope had donated to them, the Spanish. To rebut the Spaniards, Queen Elizabeth called in John Dee. Dee assured the Queen and her agents that Drake hadn't violated any laws or rights, and upon taking his counsel, they proceeded to pen a reply to the concerned Spanish government. And their response clearly echoes Dee's imperial attitude. It reads, quote, The Spaniards have brought these evils on themselves by their injustice toward the English, whom, contra ius gentium, against the law of nations, they have excluded from commerce with the West Indies. The Queen does not acknowledge that her subjects and those of other nations may be excluded from the Indies on the claim that these have been donated to the King of Spain by the Pope, whose authority to invest the Spanish King with the New World as with a fief she does not recognize. The Spaniards have no claim to property there except that they have established a few settlements and named rivers and capes. This donation of what does not belong to the donor and this imaginary right of property ought not to prevent other princes from carrying on commerce in those regions or establishing colonies there in places not inhabited by the Spaniards. Such action would in no way violate the law of nations, since prescription without possession is not valid. Unquote. In the end, the English kept the goods from the West Indies and maintained their claim over Nova Albion, and the Queen herself paid a personal visit to John Dee's house to thank him for his help in the matter. This little episode had significant implications in England's Cold War against Spain. Whereas the Spanish, who supposedly had dominion over the entire New World, had only actually been to a relatively confined portion of it, the English had now set foot on the Pacific coast. Of course, John Dee's legal contributions to the imperial scheme precede this event, perhaps most significantly in the limits of the British Empire. Before Martin Frobisher struck out in 1578 on his third and final voyage in search of the Northwest Passage, Queen Elizabeth asked John Dee, law expert, to craft a legal argument in support of such an action. This argument would have to be in accordance with the Corpus Iuris Civilis, or Body of Civil Law, set down by the Eastern Roman Emperor Justinian in A.D. 534. Though this old legal code was lost in the West for hundreds of years, it was reintegrated in the late 11th century, and by Dee's time, the late 16th century, it had become a sort of universal legal standard, a progenitor of international law. 
As nations like England refused to bow to Rome, the Pope effectively lost his power to arbitrate when two nations entered into conflict. Thus, in this age of Reformation, such an internationally recognized code became all the more important in matters regarding interstate relations. Dee's task was to satisfy not the Pope, but this law, specifically Book 41, Chapter 1 of the Corpus Juris Civilis, Acquisition of Ownership of Things, and prove that the British settled in America before Columbus ever set sail. Dee's confidence in his ability to do just that is evinced by the weight of his claims. All the islands in the North Atlantic and Arctic Ocean, except for what's north of Russia, belong to Britain. Greenland belongs to Britain. Ireland belongs to Britain. The whole east coast of North America, north of Florida, belongs to Britain. And I say belongs to Britain, not belongs to England, because, of course, John Dee also believed that the three kingdoms, England, Scotland, and Wales, ought rightly to be merged into one British imperium, to be ruled, of course, by the Tudor heirs of Arthur. Despite his fierce patriotism, Dee wasn't an entirely unsympathetic man. He recognized that the Iberians had some claim to the New World, namely to the specific parts of it they had settled in and developed— even though the British had at one time rightfully possessed even these lands, as we shall see, they had since forgotten them, and thus, by settling and developing these regions, the Spanish had legally acquired them from the British. Justinian, in his legal digest, writes, quote, Any of these things which we take, however, are regarded as ours for so long as they are governed by our control. But when they escape from our custody and return to their natural state of freedom, they cease to be ours and are again open to the first taker. Unquote. Dee's fervor now comes into focus. Because the British were no longer actually in the lands which he said were rightfully theirs, the Spanish, or really any Christian nation for that matter, could move on in, settle down, and develop the land and in the process completely obliterate the British claim over it. They had already lost Florida to the Spaniards, and now they were in danger of losing even more. The solution to this encroachment was obvious and of the utmost urgency. Colonize America now. Quote, And generally, by the same order that other Christian princes do nowadays make entrances and conquests upon the heathen people, your Highness hath also to proceed herein, both to recover the premises, and likewise by conquest to enlarge the bounds of your Majesty's foresaid title royal, thus somewhat in particular expressed. And chiefly this recovery and discovery enterprise is speedily and carefully to be taken in hand and followed with the intent of setting forth the glory of Christ and spreading abroad the heavenly tidings of the gospel among the heathen, which point of all Christian princes ought more to be esteemed than all their most glorious worldly triumphs. Unquote. Such is Dee's prescription. His motives clear and his imperial ends laid bare, we can now at last examine the meat of John Dee's legal case. It's an argument based in history, esoteric, mythic history, 
based on mysterious documents in his possession, some of which are now lost to us. According to this history, there had been, one thousand years earlier, a vast intercontinental empire that spanned the North Atlantic, the Arctic, the Americas, and more. And believe it or not, Queen Elizabeth Tudor was the heiress to that empire. Chapter 8 Historia Imperium Britanniae Quote, In a series of maps, treatises, and conferences from the 1550s to the 1590s, Dee developed an expansionist program which he called This British Discovery and Recovery Enterprise. Supporting both the discovery of new lands and the recovery of territories that once arguably belonged to the British crown, Dee gradually claimed for the Queen a vast imperial dominion covering most of the seas and much of the land in the Northern Hemisphere. Unquote. John Dee, The Politics of Reading and Writing in the English Enlightenment, by William Sherman. The 16th century was an electrifying time. There was a new world awaiting exploration and development. Scotland and Ireland teetered towards union with England, a union which would recreate the Britain of legend. There was a new, distinctly English religion, with the monarch at its head. And the House of Plantagenet had been ousted by the House of Tudor, a family whose rise corresponded with the repopularization of the mythic King Arthur, from whom they claimed direct descent. John Dee, genius that he was, capitalized on all of these facts to craft a patriotic, restorationist case to justify the creation and expansion of the world's first modern empire. What makes Dee's limits of the British Empire so fascinating isn't his knowledge of Justinian law, nor his ability to point to Estotaland on a map. The masterstroke is his use of Britain's recently rebooted Golden Age myth. You see, as he frames it, the British Empire was actually the dormant, thousand-year-old creation of the man Dee calls the paragon of all human nobility. John Dee's case would, he writes, quote, depend chiefly upon our King Arthur, unquote. And it was Arthur's esteemed heiress, Queen Elizabeth's job, to awaken that sleeping giant. Following Arthur's defeat of the Anglo-Saxons, all of Britain was united as one land under his crown, as it had been in the days of his forefather, Brutus. In Limits, Dee provides Queen Elizabeth with a lengthy genealogical argument proving, as he sees it, that she is, in fact, the rightful ruler of all the three kingdoms, that the Scottish throne is, in fact, being held by a usurper. But the internal politics of Britain are actually the least interesting part of the limits of the British Empire. According to John Dee, the Britain of the Arthurian Golden Age was hardly limited to the British Isle itself. In fact, it was hardly limited at all. Of Arthur's empire, he writes, quote, Circa Anno 530 King Arthur not only conquered and got under his subjection the islands of Ireland, Iceland, Greenland, Frisland, 
otherwise called Galandia, as by circumspect examining of ancient histories and chiefly by aid divine which I have bowled out only, with the lesser islands appertaining to the said Frisiland, which are many, the chief whereof are Dulio, Monaco, Leduvo, and Ilofe, but even unto the North Pole. Unquote. To make this spectacular case, D. cites and extensively quotes numerous arcane documents, including Geoffrey of Monmouth's Historia Regum Britanniae, which, thanks to the recent romanticized account of Arthur by Thomas Mallory, appeared to be more historically objective. Another one of Dee's sources is William Lombard's Archaeonomia, which, among other things, recounts William the Conqueror's supposed description of Arthur's ancient empire. Quote, Arthur, who was anciently the most famous king of the Britons, was a very great man, and courageous, and a celebrated warrior. This kingdom was too small for him. His spirit was not content with the realm of Britain. Therefore, he vigorously subjugated the whole of Scantia, now called Norway, and all the islands beyond Scantia, viz. Iceland and Greenland, which are dependencies of Norway, and Snekorda, and Scotland, and Gotland, and Dacia, Semiland, Winlandia, Kurlandia, Roe, Femilandia, Wirralandia, Flanders, Cherella, Lapland, and all the other lands and islands of the Eastern Ocean, as far as Russia, seeing that he established the eastern limit of the British Empire at Lip, and many other islands beyond Scantia, right up to the farthest north, which are among the dependencies of Scantia, now called Norway. These were savage and indomitable people, and had not love for God or neighbor, seeing that all evil spreads down from the north. There were, however, secret Christians there. Several examples are omitted. However, Arthur was a very good Christian, and he saw to it that they were baptized, and that one God was worshipped throughout all Norway, and a single faith in Christ adopted and held inviolable forever. And at that time all the Norwegian chieftains took wives from the noble families of Britain, and hence the Norwegians say that they are of the race and blood of this realm." For in those times King Arthur made petition to the Lord Pope and to the Roman Curia that Norway be confirmed in perpetuity to the British crown in augmentation of this kingdom. And the said Arthur called it the Vault of Britain. For this reason indeed, the Norwegians say that they have a right to live with us in this kingdom, and they say that they are a part of the body of this realm." Unquote. Not only did Arthur's dominion cover Scandinavia and the North Atlantic, his empire even extended to much of continental Europe. Quoting John Major, Felix Hemmerlin, and John Tritemius, Dee argues that even the French and the Germans were brought under Arthur's sway. Says John Major, into his empire, Arthur added, quote, all the western islands and peninsulas around Britain, and not only those, but he also subdued the Gauls and the neighboring Germans, and with his glorious army he amassed a vast dominion. Unquote. Says Felix Hemmerlin, quote, Arcturus, the most famous king of Britain, put 460 men to the sword in his victories, supported the Church of God, and vigorously propagated the faith, and he forced all the lands of France, Denmark, Norway, etc., to serve him. Unquote. 
says John Tritemius, quote, Arcturus, commonly known as Arcus, the most renowned king of Britain, expelled the barbarians, restored peace to the church, was victorious in many battles, propagated the Christian faith, brought under his rule the whole of Gaul, Norway, Denmark, and many other provinces. While he was king, England flourished and thirty kings were under him. Unquote. Note Tritemius's final claim. Thirty kings were under Arthur. Not only does this mean that he conquered thirty nations, but it means that he was himself no mere king, but a king of kings. An emperor. And if we take this seriously, as John Dee did, the British had, at one time, a right and just claim to all of these thirty lands left to them by their king emperor Arthur. But, over the course of the intervening millennium, Britain itself fractured, and with its union obliterated, the empire disintegrated. Many of these abandoned lands were appropriated by other Christian kings, making them, in accordance with Justinian's law, no longer British property. While the European mainland was virtually irretrievable, there was still hope for the more northerly regions of the long-lost empire. According to Dee's sources, large portions of the Arctic, almost as far as the North Pole itself, fell under Arthur's dominion. The stories of Arthur's northern adventures are fantastic, to say the least. In the limits of the British Empire, Dee notes that cities surrounded the North Pole in Arthur's time. The master cartographer Gerard Mercator, in a letter to Dee reproduced in Limits, speaks of little people in the northern regions. Interestingly, in this reproduction, Dee leaves out the bit where Mercator adds that Arthur also encountered 23-foot-tall giants in Greenland. Perhaps he didn't want to frighten the Queen or any potential explorers. In John Dee, King Arthur and the Conquest of the Arctic, Thomas Green traces the claims of Arthur's Arctic exploits at least as far back as the Arturi Gestis, an elusive lost source mentioned in Dee's limits. Based on the writings of Dee and others, it would appear that this text contained a more detailed account of Arthur's alleged conquests than we're currently left with. Mercator says as much to Dee regarding the Arturi Gestis in his letter, which was reproduced in limits. Quote, these are the mountains of which it is written that there were among them certain cities, as you can find mentioned in the Arthuri Gestis, and over against them dwell a people of small stature, mentioned in the Arthuri Gestis, etc. Unquote. Now, it's at this point that we must briefly pause our examination of Dee's history to point out some interesting similarities. In part one of this series, I pointed out that the tactic of synchronizing domestic and foreign myths for imperial purposes was practiced by the Greeks, who deliberately melded the story of their character Aeneas with the native Italian tale of Romulus and Remus. This melding would go on to become the popular origin myth of Rome, espoused by the Romans themselves. I then speculated that the Romans may have done the same to the British, that the Brutus myth particularly its connection with Aeneas, may have been deliberately inserted into the British consciousness during the Roman conquest of Britain as a way of massaging the natives into seeing their conquerors as comrades. 
We may be witnessing a similar phenomenon in the tales of King Arthur's northern conquests. In his article on Arthur in the Arctic, Thomas Green notes the striking similarities between Arthur's exploits and those of the historical figure Eric the Red, the 10th century explorer from Norway who founded the first Norse settlement in Greenland. These similarities include the traversing of an indrawing sea, the encounters with little people, called Skraelings in the Norse account, and the encounters with 23-foot-tall giants, and, of course, the setting of their respective conquests. Green suggests that the Arctic elements of the Arthur story may be, in part, borrowed from the Eric story. Now, if this is true, and now this is me talking, not Green, if it's true that the British credited their character Arthur with the accomplishments of Eric, could it be that they deliberately did so in order to sneakily claim possession over the lands that Eric subdued for Norway? As we've seen, Felix Hammerlin, John Tritemius, Gerard Mercator, John Dee, and, according to William Lombard, even William the Conqueror, all claimed that King Arthur had colonized Greenland, which Eric settled in, and even Norway, Eric's homeland. And, if you believe these British accounts, Arthur did all of this some 400 years before Eric was born. Very convenient. Of course, these accounts all appear well after the death of Eric. According to Mercator, Arthur was the savior of Norway, baptizing its pagan natives in the name of Jesus Christ. This fact, he claims, led to a blood union between the peoples of Norway and Britain. Mercator writes to Dee, quote, Arthur was a very good Christian, and he saw to it that they were baptized, and that one God was worshipped throughout all Norway, and a single faith in Christ adopted and held inviolable forever. And at that time all the Norwegian chieftains took wives from the noble families of Britain, and hence the Norwegians say that they are of the race and blood of this realm." Unquote. Here we have the British inserting their own heroic figure into the myth and history of the Norse, a people whom they claim dominion over, much like the Greeks did to the Romans, and the Romans, I speculate, did to the British. In doing so, the British gain the added benefit of undermining the accomplishments of their would-be subjects by claiming that their own hero, Arthur, did everything the Norse hero, Eric, actually did, only more extensively and far, far earlier. This is, of course, my own speculation, as such an assessment cannot be proven by existing primary sources. However, as in the case of Brutus and Aeneas, I contend that this is rational speculation, and that it's consistent with the manipulative and subversive tactics of imperial intellectuals throughout history. The question of Norse influence on the Arthurian legend can't be definitively answered, but it does offer a fascinating segue into what is, perhaps, the most interesting part of Dee's imperial pseudo-history. Eric the Red's son, Leif, Leif Erikson, arrived in the Americas around the year 1000. Most modern historians agree that Leif explored the northeastern regions of modern-day Canada. So is it any surprise, then, that John Dee places Arthur, or at the very least envoys of King Arthur, in the very same place 500 years before Leif? Writes Dee, quote, 
It is very probable that either by King Arthur his people, either originally as Grockland was, or by colony from Grockland being not far off, this Estotoland was first possessed or named. Unquote. Estotoland, according to Ken McMillan's analysis of Dee's geographical work, refers to Baffin Island in the northeast of Canada, an area possibly explored by Leif Erikson. The fact that Dee incorporates the New World into Arthur's massive empire is significant in that, if you buy it, it thoroughly obliterates any Spanish claim to the right of first discovery. Moreover, in order to satisfy the Justinian legal principle that land isn't made property by claim alone, but also by cultivation, Dee asserts that Arthur actually brought civilization to the Americas. Quote, and seeing King Arthur is recorded to have been lord over all the northern isles unto the pole in manner, and thirdly, seeing the termination of this word Estotelant or Estoteland is most like to be of the Germanical or Sweden framing, and fourthly, seeing above two hundred years since there were yet remaining in the king of Estoteland his library, a number of Latin books, but they so long before brought thither that none of them of the isle could either tell how they came thither first, or yet then understand the Latin tongue. And fifthly, seeing they of the island had all manner of handicrafts as we have, or had two hundred years past, in respect of all these circumstances and allegations, it is very probable that either by King Arthur his people, either originally as Grockland was, or by colony from Grockland being not far off, this Estoteland was first possessed or named, and that the same Latin books were of Christian religion, thither directly sent by King Arthur's commandment, or from Grockland imparted and transported for settling and maintaining of the Christian religion in those parts, wherein by sundry records King Arthur is commended to have been marvelous zealous. Unquote. John D. tells us that as the Spanish clamored to civilize or eradicate the wild natives of Central and South America, in the northernmost parts of the New World, there were Latin libraries full of Christian books and technologies on par with those of Europe all commissioned by King Arthur a millennium before. Surely the act of bringing and leaving civilization to a land satisfied a claim of rightful possession, at least more so than merely showing up, as the Spanish had done. As good as this claim was, the Tudor right to the New World was still in peril. As Dee points out, the people of Estoteland were on the verge of losing their Latin tongue, and therefore on the verge of losing the ability to read the books sent by Arthur. This, of course, would send them spiraling out of their state of civilization back into the state of nature, which would nullify the British claim according to Justinian. Again, as Book 41, Chapter 1 of the Corpus Juris Civilis clearly says of properties, quote, but when they escape from our custody and return to their natural state of freedom, they cease to be ours and are again open to the first taker." Unquote. And yet, even still, despite this problem, it's not merely for the sake of the crown's property that Dee urgently raises his concerns. No. 
He's concerned for the very souls of these poor Americans whose salvation is in jeopardy. Given that they are, according to his history, essentially subjects of the British Empire, it's Elizabeth's duty to return to them, to keep them from sinking into decadence, barbarism, and sin. Quote, It is indeed the duty of the king to keep a watch on all the lands and rights, all the powers, laws, and liberties of the crown of this kingdom, to keep them intact, in their entirety, and without diminution, to defend those that are dispersed, and with all his might to restore any laws of the kingdom that have vanished or fallen into decay to their original and proper status. Unquote. Herein we find an element which will go on to be central to the later imperial ideology, namely, that the expansion of Britain and Britishness is in fact good for the colonized that the empire, in a way, is a gift to the world, the bringer of civilization, a noble service offered by the goodly heirs of Brutus. Better hurry, there are souls to save. Naturally, it must be asked, how in the world does John Dee know so much about the people of Estodaland? In his answer to this question, Dee reveals something interesting about his historical record. Earlier, I mentioned that Dee cites the now-lost Arthurigestis in his section on Arthur's northern conquests. And there are other documents going back to the 12th century or thereabouts which place Arthur up there, too. In other words, these claims of Arthur raising hell in the Arctic were already around for a couple hundred years by the time Dee got to them. Not so for Arthur's American adventures, interestingly enough. Following his shocking revelations of the Estodaland civilization, he explains how he came to the conclusion that it was Arthur who colonized the land. And here's that conclusion. Who else could have done it? Quote, And all this is so much the rather to be ascribed unto King Arthur his acts and ordinances, seeing to no other man by any other means or in any other thing else. All the former circumstances so reasonably can agree or be appropriated. Nay, seeing no history or record yet in our hands doth make mention of any other prince or potentate his conquests, discoveries, or sailing beyond Greenland, from his time, about Anno 520, till within these two hundred years last past, when we came by the memory of Estotaland renewed by the noble Venetians, whose history thereof I exhibited unto your majesty the last year at Windsor Castle." Unquote. Unlike in the case of the Arctic, there is no continuous historical record saying anything about Arthur in Estodaland. In fact, there's no record of anyone in Estodaland at all, at least none that Dee mentions. Leif Erikson's voyage to the same region of the New World is conspicuously absent from Dee's accounting. The first mention of Estodaland, he said, came after the Venetian-born Zeno brothers sailed to the Americas and found what Dee claims to be King Arthur's lost colony. He recounts the brothers' findings in The Limits of the British Empire. Quote, Two noble Venetians, who almost two hundred years ago named not only Estotaland, but also Frisaland, closer to us, and many other islands lying in the northern seas, made them known to our men by their writings. 
It was on their authority that we located Estotaland about a thousand miles at least to the west of Frisiland. The inhabitants cultivate their fields and brew beer. Their territory is rich in woods and groves. They fortify their many cities with castles and walls, and are familiar with ships and navigation. Many such inhabitants are to be found, stretching continuously well into the interior of the territory of Drogio, Labrador, and occupying various different regions. But a man traveling a long way on from Drogio itself, in a southwesterly direction, passing through the lands of cannibals and savage people who go always naked, however bitter the extremes of cold they must endure, comes to a region of a more temperate climate, and to a people knowing the use of gold and silver and living in a civilized manner. Here, however, they sacrifice men to abominable idols in the temples of their cities, and afterwards feast ritually upon their flesh. To these fishermen, the Venetians, journeying for thirteen years at a stretch through a variety of unknown lands, and experiencing great kindness at the hands of more than twenty-five different rulers, the extent of those regions appeared so vast that they thought they had discovered a new world." Unquote. The Zeno brothers' voyage was supposed to have taken place in the late 14th century, roughly 1390 or so, so about a century before Columbus. While Dee and his contemporaries, such as Mercator, took this dating for granted, it must be noted that the actual story of the Zeno brothers' trip to America didn't appear until 1558, when a descendant of theirs just so happened to find their letters and maps while cleaning out his attic. A questionable story with no real evidence to support its veracity, and post-Columbian, too. Nevertheless, Mercator incorporated the information from the alleged Zeno maps into his own maps, and John Dee was perfectly comfortable using the Zeno story to justify his imperial ambitions to the Queen, never mind the fact that the actual Zeno documents at no point suggest that the British, let alone King Arthur, had anything to do with the civilizing of the American natives. Yet, in the limits of the British Empire, Dee writes that the northernmost natives, those of Estotaland or Baffin Island, were the most civilized Americans according to the Zenos, and that, as the brothers ventured farther south, they found the natives to be wild and uncivilized. Dee then asserts that only King Arthur could have brought civilization to the northerners, because who else could, thereby making the case, in a staggeringly fallacious fashion, that the Zeno brothers had stumbled upon proof that the British had, in fact, colonized parts of the New World. Interesting side note. Even 200 years after the time of John Dee, the Zeno story was still being used to place Brits in the Americas before Columbus. Johann Reinhold Forster, a naturalist and theologian who in 1778 argued that the different human races were arranged in a linear hierarchical fashion, with European whites at the top, of course, claimed that the Zeno brothers' Native American host, Zikmini, wasn't a native at all, but the Scot-Norwegian nobleman Henry I Sinclair, Earl of Orkney, Lord of Roslyn. Side-side note, 
This very same Henry was allegedly an on-the-run Knight Templar, and his grandson, William St. Clair, was the builder of Rosalind Chapel in Scotland, which supposedly plays a central role in the mysterious early history of Freemasonry. But boy, is that a subject for another time. Back to John Dee, flimsy as his version of the Zeno story was, he nonetheless spun it into pro-British, pro-Empire propaganda, using it to breathe life into the mythic golden age of King Arthur. Across the sea, there was an actual artifact of that legendary time, though it was in peril of total degradation. Quote, it is ruled over by a king who lives in a very beautiful and very populous city, and who keeps in his household interpreters skilled in various tongues. In this city there was, two hundred years ago, a famous library containing various books in Latin. However, there were at that time scarcely two people in the whole island who understood that language." Unquote. The New World itself represented the chance to get back to the magical days of yore, if only Queen Elizabeth seized the opportunity. What was it that Virgil said of Augustus Caesar? Sent to the realm that Saturn ruled of old, born to restore a better age of gold? On this spurious utopian basis, Dee purports that it's the right and duty, not of Spain, not of Portugal, but of a united Britain, under Tudor crown, to recapture and re-civilize the poor inhabitants of the great landmass beyond the Atlantic, that land which we call America, which John Dee calls Atlantis. Quote, As for the right which mought, may, or shall accrue and fall to any Christian prince by first discovery of the heathen coasts and dominions Atlantical, I have in the former parcel of this record, by date annexed, made evident that neither the Portugal nor the Spaniard did, in or to, any part of Atlantis or the isles about the same, arrive or make any voyage, before that some subjects and other subjects of subjects to the British and English monarchs had both descried and discovered the easterly and northerly coasts thereof. And not only the sea coasts, but also within the main of Atlantis, had gone through the most part of all the island provinces of the northerly part thereof, some of them by the space of thirteen years continually, being conversant with above twenty-five diverse heathenish princes of those countries. Which discoverers and travelers, considering the huge largeness of the territories and provinces Atlantical by them passed and repassed over, did in those days deem it to be a new world, as before I have noted unto your majesty in the Latin annotation upon Estotaland. As far as D was concerned, the Iberian claim to the new world, which had been granted by Rodrigo Borja, Pope Alexander VI, was obliterated. On what basis could they argue first discovery if King Arthur had civilized Baffin Island in the 6th century and the Zeno brothers had confirmed this in the 14th? Dee added insult to injury. He claimed that even following the grand exploits of Arthur, Britons had continued to travel to the Americas, to Atlantis. Quote, Circa Anno 560, Brandon, 
the great learned man, and the excellent Cambrian Macutus, and others in their company discovered very much of the western parts about and toward Atlantis, but chiefly notable islands unto one of which he gave the name Brandon's Island, and so it is named by the cosmographers of this age. The Great Isle, likewise of terrible apparitions and fantasies, commonly in Latin named Insula Daemonum, doth seem to have been by the said Brendan his discovery, and to have been well known unto him, by almost incredible events, then happening unto him and his company. And because it is full of goodly woods and forests, and void of all human habitation, it hath lately been named Dos Arbaredos. Of four of five other islands by him and his company discovered, and for seven years space continually, once every year, visited, as it were in circuit, I omit in this place the recital or my conjecture, which and where they are, unquote. Well, that explains all the hubbub about your Brandon, eh? Brandon was a saint and scholar from the Irish town of Clonfert, who in the year 560 crossed an ocean, found Atlantis, the Americas, traveled to Insula Demonum, located in what we now call the Bermuda Triangle, and lived. Go, Brandon, go! D offers yet another case, this one supposedly occurring around the year 1170. Quote, The Lord Madoc, son to Owen Gwynedd, prince of North Wales, leaving his brother in contention and wars for their inheritance, sought by sea, westerly from Ireland, for some foreign and apt region to plant himself in with sovereignty. Which region, when he had found, he returned to Wales again, and furnished himself with ships, victuals, armor, men and women sufficient for the colony, which speedily he lead into the province and named Aquaza, but of late, Florida, or into some of the provinces and territories near thereabouts, as in Appalachian, Mocosa, Norumbega, each of these four being notable portions of the ancient Atlantis, not long since now named America." Unquote. With this history, most significantly that which involves King Arthur, Dee posited a united Britain, England, Scotland, and Wales all under one crown as one nation, whose borders spanned much of the Western Hemisphere. As Ken McMillan succinctly puts it, quote, The boundaries of the British Empire included all of North America, all of the North Atlantic, and the entire Arctic Ocean abutting Northern Europe. Unquote. Chapter 9. Effects of Limits Despite King Arthur's traditional approach to heroism, riding in, driving out the pagans and barbarians, and helping the good people to find Jesus until they pledge their everlasting loyalty to him, John Dee tells us that, surprisingly, not all of the colonized were fans of Arthur's. There were certain ingrates who would downplay the extent of Arthur's empire. Quote, Saxons, Scots, Picts, Danes, and Norwegians, and others who felt the force and dint of his sword did what they could to deface or utterly to raise out the memory of that incomparable Britain. Unquote. According to D. Polydor Virgil, the great humanist critic of Britain's legendary history, didn't debunk it on rational grounds. No, 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 no. Instead, Polydor Virgil burnt cartfuls of primary documents, documents that described the full extent of Arthur's glorious empire. It's because of him, you see that we don't have the concrete proof that we would want, 
that says that Arthur was in fact in the Americas and everywhere else. Mending this broken record was therefore one of Dee's motivations for writing The Limits of the British Empire. Of course, having gone through the history that Dee provides, it would appear that this magician, this man who spoke to angels, this intelligence agent, may have taken some creative liberties with his accounting of British history. Despite this, his counsel was taken seriously by the Queen for years after the presentation of Limits, and in the long run, some of his hopes for the Empire would be made manifest, though he himself wouldn't live to see it. He was, in a way, a century ahead of his time. The development of a de facto British Empire was fairly slow-going in the hundred years that followed Dee's death in 1609, with much of Britain's international activity involving private commercial firms, not the heavy hand of the centralized state. But in 1707, almost exactly a hundred years after his death, England and Scotland merged at last to officially form the Kingdom of Great Britain just as John Dee had hoped for. Following this, Britain would go on to cultivate and civilize the eastern coast of the Americas north of Florida, regions which Dee had claimed for the British over a century earlier. Maybe the odd Welshman could see into the future after all. But how much of what became the empire is actually due to Dee's limits? I mean, what direct effects did this volume actually have? Unfortunately, it's difficult to say with any real precision. The Limits of the British Empire was never published as a book for public consumption. Rather, it was a set of internal documents intended for state purposes, written by John Dee, a one-man political think tank. Analyzing its direct impact would be like analyzing the direct impact of the Project for a New American Century's Rebuilding America's Defenses paper on the George W. Bush administration. There's a very clear overlap between what's recommended in the document and what was manifested policy-wise, yet proving a causal relationship between the two is difficult because political figures tend not to draw attention to their behind-the-scenes intellectual guides. Still, though the causality in such cases can't be definitively proven, it can, I think, be justifiably inferred when the actions of political figures match or nearly match the recommendations of their advisors. Thus, for this reason and others, it can be inferred that Dee's limits played a significant role in the actual creation of a tangible British empire. Nevertheless, some have assumed that because limits and other manuscripts went unpublished, they must not have been important. This is, however, a very flawed and limiting view. On this issue, William Sherman writes in John Dee, The Politics of Reading and Writing in the English Renaissance, quote, Such blanket assumptions of a linear progression from script to print with a concomitant escalation in the importance of the work are untenable, particularly for the early modern period. As Harold Love and others have shown, many texts, especially poems, circulated as manuscripts in a private fashion among a coterie for whom the work would have a special meaning, value, and use. This was not only the case with literary nor with occult or scientific material. Political, social, and economic debate, too, was largely confined to private manuscript circulation. Many projects and position papers were submitted directly to the government under highly controlled conditions. 
These political manuscripts, which is how many of Dee's writings must be classified, were never intended for, indeed would have been inappropriate for, a wider reading public. Unquote. If Limits was intended to propagandize anyone, it wasn't the public, but the Queen herself who was the target. Dee's aim was to convince her that she was the sole heir to a legendary empire, either that or she was in on the scam all along. As for the general public, they needn't be troubled with all the confusing details. The Tudor family had for nearly a hundred years at that point been closely associated with the Arthurian myth, and perhaps that was good enough. Limits presented Elizabeth with the esoteric side of that connection and recommended that she take full advantage of it. Following the production and presentation of The Limits of the British Empire, Dee was considered by the educated English elite an authority on all matters imperial. I've already mentioned that Dee advised Martin Frobisher in his quests for the Northwest Passage in the late 1570s, as well as his handling of the Drake Affair in 1580, when Dee was brought in to resolve the dispute with the Spanish. In 1581, the lawyer Charles Murbury wrote, quote, Master D. hath very learnedly of late, in certain tables by him collected out of sundry ancient and approved writers, shown unto her majesty that she may justly call herself lady and empress of all the northern islands. Unquote. In 1582, the merchant Sir George Peckham consulted D. and then, quote, outlined for the Queen the benefits of seizing control of the unclaimed territory between Canada and northern Florida. In justifying this effort to restore Her Highness's ancient titles, Peckham drew upon the legend of Lord Madoc, who had established a title through prescription of time, the exact argument used by D. Unquote, writes Ken Macmillan in the essay Discourse on History, Geography, and Law. Richard Hacklute a notorious advocate for empire and a personal friend of John Dee's presented his Discourse on Western Planting to the Crown in 1584 in an attempt to secure permission for Sir Walter Raleigh to sail to the New World. Macmillan writes, quote, In the chapter of the Discourse Concerning the Queen's Sovereign Title, the most scholarly portion of the treatise, Hacklute argued that the Queen had title to Florida, northward to the Arctic, based on the voyages of Maddock, Cabot, Thorne, and others mentioned by Dee. It's important to note that despite Hacklute's modern reputation as Elizabethan England's leading propagandist of empire, on the whole, Dee's works were better received and utilized by the English crown than Hacklute's discourse, unquote. That very same year, Elizabeth granted Raleigh a patent, quote, to discover, search, find out, and view such remote, heathen, and barbarous lands, countries, and territories not actually possessed of any Christian prince nor inhabited by Christian people, as to him, his heirs, and assigned, and to every or any of them shall seem good, and to the same to have, hoard, occupy, and enjoy to him, unquote. In 1593, Dee was asked by the Crown to produce a new copy of The Limits of the British Empire, a collection of the four constituent documents all in one volume. This new edition was then taken into state custody, and for his troubles and for his service, Dee was paid 100 pounds, 
the equivalent of thirty-seven thousand four hundred and seventy-nine pounds today, an amount exceeding the value of fifty thousand dollars. So yeah, I think limits was probably pretty important. Though she wasn't as imperialistic as her successors would go on to be, the foundations of the empire were laid down during Elizabeth's reign, and the extent to which she was imperialistic seems to be the result of the work of John Dee and his appeals to Britain's Golden Age myth. Writes William Sherman, quote, Dee could hardly have held a more prominent place in what Kenneth Andrews described as the Tudor conjunction of maritime enterprise and the genesis of the British Empire. He is traditionally credited with the very term British Empire, and he was one of its earliest, boldest, and most ingenious advocates. Unquote. Chapter 10. Commerce and Conquest International Queen Elizabeth I died in 1603, to be replaced by James of the Scottish House of Stuart. With the ascension of the Scottish James, the crowns of England and Scotland were united at last, though not yet officially, still making James the first king of Great Britain in almost a thousand years, if the old legends are to be believed. It was during the reign of King James that the colonization of North America began in earnest, with the founding of James Fort in 1607, later to be renamed Jamestown, and the founding of the Plymouth Colony in 1620. One would imagine that John Dee would be held in high esteem considering these circumstances, and yet John Dee was nowhere to be found. The new king was a zealous Christian, even today, he's best remembered for his authorized English translation of the Bible, the so-called King James Version. James was dreadfully concerned about witches and warlocks, to the extent that he even wrote a book entitled Demonology, warning of a myriad of dark forces that threatened the mortal world, including sorcery, necromancy, and vampirism. Though keeping Dee around may have been politically pragmatic in the past— the new king was alarmed by his reputation as an occult master. James accused Dee of being a heretic and a conjurer of devils. Thus diminished, the intellectual father of James's empire died an impoverished old man in 1609, just two years after the establishment of the first permanent British settlement in the land he called Atlantis. The passing of Dee ushered in another stage in the development of the empire. If Dee's shocking appeals to a mythic utopia represent the conception of the British Empire, then the international commercial enterprises that followed the ascendance of King James represent the empire's gestation period, leading up to its official birth in 1707, when England, Scotland, and Wales formally become one nation. Great Britain. In this age of gestation, the arguments for British, or really English, presence overseas grew more sophisticated than questionable appeals to secret documents and old legends about King Arthur. Still, these new justifications for imperialism carried in them the spirit of John Dee's old justifications, 
Always there was the unyielding belief in unconquerable Britishness, that it was the duty of the British to civilize the whole backward world, because, like Dee said of Arthur's supposed colony in Estotaland, who else could do it? The sort of civilization building that Dee ascribes to Arthur more than satisfied the requisite conditions for land to be considered property according to Justinian law, a fact which, perhaps, reveals the true motivation behind Dee's and other imperialists' urgent desire to tame the new wild lands. Civilizations make money, after all. At least, they ought to if they're run right. This practical reality was understood well after the fall and demise of John Dee, well into the age of King James and beyond. And yet, the question of morality could never be entirely shaken, even if the question was only ever asked to suit cynical, self-interested, pragmatic purposes. And that moral question, as posed by Robert Gray in The Year of Dee's Death, was this. Quote, By what right or warrant we can enter into the land of these savages, take away their rightful inheritance from them, and plant ourselves in their place, being unwronged or unprovoked by them. Unquote. What about the natives? One solution to this problem was offered the following year, 1610, by Sir Edward Coke, the greatest jurist of the age. The Right Honorable Sir Edward contended, quite simply, that because the natives were heathens, they were owed nothing by the Christian conquerors. They had no rights. Their souls were as good as damned as it was. Therefore, they were to be treated as an eternal foe, perpetui enemici, and exterminated as if they were the devil's own spawn. The modern listener will be relieved to hear, however, that Koch's theory was generally viewed as unacceptable, even back then. Perhaps it was due to a religious or ideological disposition, or maybe it was just to differentiate themselves from the Spanish, whose vicious treatment of the American natives was brought to light by Bartolomé de las Casas. Either way, the British insisted that their purpose in the Americas was not conquest, but commerce. They weren't there to oppress the tribes' folk, but to establish legitimate commercial organizations. David Armitage writes in The Elizabethan Idea of Empire, quote, The British Empire was the first post-Reformation empire. It was an empire of commerce, not conquest, defended by its navy rather than being propagated by an army, unquote. As the years passed, the secondary goal of saving the souls of the heathen Indians drifted in and out of focus, depending on the situation. At the very beginning, when the crown was fairly disinterested in the Americas, the salvation of the natives was touted as a moral obligation by ambitious advocates of empire. But once the British established themselves in the New World, souls were only worth saving so long as they stayed out of the way of business. From the Oxford History of the British Empire, Volume 1, The Origins of Empire, quote, this new image of empire changed the kind of enterprise the English, and subsequently the British Empire, was to become. It meant, too, that English relations with, and attitudes toward, the aboriginal peoples of the Americas was different from that of the Spanish. The Spanish sought to integrate the Indians into a miscegenated society, albeit at the lowest possible social level, and the French attempted to Frenchify their indigenes. 
The English, after decades of moralizing, sought only to exclude the Indians, or, where expedient, to annihilate them. And because of their view of themselves as a commercial and agricultural, rather than a conquering people, few Europeans were so little given to moral scruples over their imperial exploits as the English." Unquote. As ruthless as they allowed themselves to get, some moral justification was needed for the British treatment of the Native Americans, something not so cruel and unforgiving as Edward Coke's proposition, yet still something that would ensure British supremacy. At last, the solution came in 1689, in two treatises of government by John Locke. In these works, Locke posited a theory of property based on the axiom that all land and natural resources are universal property until they are consciously transformed by the labor of an individual or company of individuals. Only at this point is universal property transformed into private property. While Europeans had turned their lands into farms and built up established villages and cities, clear acts of property creation, the natives in America, by and large, had not. From the Oxford Origins of Empire, quote, Because Amerindians merely roamed and foraged across the land, they did not own it. The Indians had only, in Robert Cushman's words, run over the grass as do also the foxes and wild beasts, and did nothing to add to its value by maturing, gathering, ordering, etc., on the other hand, the English, by settling and maturing, gathering, ordering, etc., had acquired rights of possession in the land to which the original inhabitants could make no claim, unquote. Of course, there were critics to this all-too-convenient formulation. Jeremiah Dummer argued that the natives did, in fact, have a property right to their land because they were constantly living off of it. Roger Williams argued that the king's hunting grounds were considered private property. Why shouldn't the Indians' hunting grounds be private property, too? But in the end, of course, it was determined that the activities of the American natives did not earn them property rights, and so they were driven off by men with plans. But despite the pragmatic commercial motivations driving imperial development, the empire could always don a mask of benevolence, in the days of John D. and King James, imperialists like Richard Hakluyt, Samuel Purchase, and to an extent D. and James themselves, pushed for a Christian empire, a Protestant alternative to the Roman Catholic Church. But with the rise of Locke in the Age of Enlightenment, there came a new, secular, modern justification for a global British empire. In a word, that benevolent cause was progress. According to John Locke, the highest purpose of humanity, the very thing that makes humans human, is the use of reason to transform the world. In other words, the telos of man is the creation of property. The British were very good at creating property. Therefore, they were very well-developed human beings. Native Americans, on the other hand, well... They weren't out cultivating the land and transforming it into property, so, therefore, they weren't properly utilizing their reason, and, therefore, they were less developed as human beings. But, to Locke, 
This didn't grant imperialists the right to injure or kill the poor wretches. Rather, it obligated them to lift up their fellow man. Thus, global Britannia, updated for the age of reason, wouldn't offer spiritual salvation as its first-generation advocates intended, so much as it would offer social salvation, the aided evolution of primitive man into civilized man. The promise of the empire became global progress. From the Oxford Origins of Empire, quote, For Locke, agricultural societies were the final stage in a development which had begun with nomadic hunter-gatherer communities and then progressed through Aristotle's lazy pastoralists before reaching the true polis, the settled political community. Civil societies were defined in terms of the modes of their political authority— such societies could also only ever be agricultural and subsequently commercial ones. Agriculture constituted the final stage in the development of the social expression of human rationality, since agriculture not only transformed, in Aristotelian terms, nature's potential into actuality, it also required a high degree of cooperation and the existence of settled communities. It carried, therefore, a quasi-sacral significance, in that by tilling and improving the land, men were not merely ameliorating their own condition, but were fulfilling their ends as men. Unquote. It was hoped that the positive, civilizing influence of the British would rub off on native populations, be they in America, Africa, India, or any other unfortunate place. The end of this process of progressing towards civilization would more than make up for the sometimes painful means. Quote, Locke seems to have shared the view of many Europeans that the comforts which the Europeans could provide and teach the Indians how to provide for themselves would easily compensate them for their loss of the traditional and wasted hunting grounds. Unquote. Given this global civilizing mission, it's no surprise that gentlemanliness and a whole slew of other rigidly enforced etiquette-based social practices developed among Britain's upper classes as the empire continued to expand into foreign lands. British colonists painted themselves as the beneficent saviors of the distraught and backward savages of America. These weren't the natives that the Spanish so cruelly warred with, natives who lived in cities and feasted on human flesh. These were helpless, unpropertied primitives in need of proper guidance. Once more from Oxford's Origins of Empire. Quote, if, as it was claimed, the English had only settled on vacant lands with the consent of the native populations, unlike the Spaniards who had invaded territories rightly occupied by legitimate, if primitive, rulers, it followed that English colonization was mutually beneficial to migrant and native. Again, unlike the Spanish. In their own self-image, the English, then, became not the conquerors of Indians, but their potential saviors, not only from paganism and pre-agricultural modes of subsistence, but also from Spanish tyranny. Robert Johnson invited the prospective English settler in Virginia to consider the great works of freeing the poor Indians from their devourers and how the children, when they first come to be saved, will bless the day when first their father saw your faces. 
By the early 17th century, it had become common for the English colonists to represent themselves as benevolent settlers helping the benighted Indians to develop God's plenty. The Amerindians were, in Hakluyt's words, a people crying out to us to come and help. This sentiment was even incorporated into the seal of the Massachusetts Bay Company in 1629, on which an Indian was depicted waving a banner inscribed with the words, Come over and help us. In exchange for this much-needed help, increasingly large areas of territory for their own use was all these harbingers of European technology required. Unquote. While the establishment of transatlantic commercial networks may have been the true motive for empire from the very beginning, the justifications for the colonial project always centered around British moral and societal superiority. First, the empire would rekindle the olden age of gold, when the kings and chieftains of the northern world pledged themselves to the great King Arthur, heir of Brutus, father of the Tudors. Then the empire would spread Protestant Christianity and combat the despotism of the Roman Catholic Church. Finally, thanks to the material and technological advances which followed from its commercialism, the empire would facilitate the social evolution of the world's inferior peoples. It would maintain this role until its demise, or rather, rebranding, in the 20th century. Ironically, the female Britannia declared herself patriarch of the human race, the master of its moral and evolutionary fate. Whereas the initial conception of the British Empire began with the redefining of imperium, in theory, it would ultimately set this imperium aside in favor of an altogether different sort of power. In 1656, Englishman James Harrington published The Commonwealth of Oceana. This overtly utopian work outlined the ideal republic, a polity which had struck perfect balance between empire and liberty. Despite his opposition to monarchy, Harrington's Oceana would, by imperialists of the Victorian age, be retroactively deemed a seminal text in the annals of British colonialism. Perhaps this is because he and the monarchist imperialists both rode the same white horse. Quote, Hearken, I say, if thy brother cry unto thee in affliction, wilt thou not hear him? This is a commonwealth of the fabric that hath an open ear and a public concernment. She is not made for herself only, but given as a magistrate of God unto mankind, for the vindication of common right and the law of nature. Wherefore saith Cicero of the like, that of the Romans, Nos magis patronatum orbis terrarum suscepimus quam imperium. We have rather undertaken the patronage than the empire of the world. A commonwealth, I say, of this make is a minister of God upon earth, to the end that the world may be governed with righteousness, for which cause, that I may come at length unto our present business, the orders last rehearsed are buds of empire, such as, with the blessing of God, may spread the arms of your commonwealth like an holy asylum unto the distressed world, and give the earth her Sabbath of years or rest from her labors under the shadow of your wings. Unquote. End of part two. 